Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Good afternoon and welcome to Engage for Success Radio show number 521, The Impact of Behaviour on Performance. Today we're going to be talking about going from blame and process focused to something else. Intriguing. I'm Joe Dodds, your host for today. I'm an engagement consultant working within the Engage for Success core team. The Engage for Success movement is an inclusive movement committed to the idea that there is a better way to work by releasing more of the capability and potential of people at work. We spread the word about employee engagement and shine a light on good practice, inspiring people and workplaces to thrive. We're widely supported across the UK involving the public, private and third sectors. If you go to our website, which is engageforsuccess.org, you can use the link at the bottom of the page to join our newsletter list and all our social media links are there too. So my guest today is Chris Turner, who's a consultant in emergency medicine. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Joe. It is absolutely lovely to be here chatting to you. Lovely. So uh, it's always good when we get... uh, uh, guests on the show are at the sort of sharp end of things. I, I guess you really are at the sharp end in most people's minds in terms of, of what you're doing. So tell us a bit about uh, who you are, what you do, and, and you know why you're joining us today. Okay. So, yeah, my name is Chris Turner. I'm a consultant in emergency medicine at University Hospitals of Coventry and Warwickshire, which is one of those massive hospitals in, in the middle of England. We're a major trauma centre. Uh, I've worked there for about the last 12 years. And... I've worked with some completely amazing people who I was thinking earlier on about how I got interested in the stuff we're going to talk about, which is behavior in the workplace, really. Um, And when I when I came to work in uh, in UHCW, I I was quite overwhelmed by how good the people were around me, how well they ran trauma and how they how they made people part of the team, how they controlled the team at times, but not all the time, and how they got amazing results. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to be able to do this. But then I watched them and I realized that there there are some behaviors which just seem to help teams to perform better. And I started thinking about that. And at the same time, I was a governance leader and I spent a decade as a governance lead, um, investigating and trying to understand what what had happened, primarily when things went wrong. And when I started doing that, and certainly at the very beginning of when I was, um, when I was just beginning to be a governance lead, I, I was definitely process focused. I believed in the process. I believed if the process worked as it was meant to work then things would be the best they could be. And I slipped into this way of thinking that if the process didn't work properly, then surely it was somebody's fault that it didn't work properly. And of course, that that's not true because sometimes the process, you know, the process is written in peacetime, but sometimes we work in a place that feels more like war mm. where there's, you know, things just break down around us. We are overwhelmed with the number of things that we're asked to do. It doesn't matter what your job is going to happen to any of us. And emergency medicine has that on a regular basis when when the tide of patients coming into the department outstrips our resources. 
then the process as it's written down often just doesn't work. And I started looking at what did work. And basically it became more and more clear that what worked was trusting people, getting people to feel included. And what else worked was treating them respectfully, that when people felt respected, that they were giving more of themselves and they were sharing more information. And that led me to this thing a few years ago, we, we started something called Civility Saves Lives. And Civility Saves Lives is a grassroots medical um, organization, although people use it outside medicine now as well, dedicated to raising awareness of the impact of behavior on performance at an individual team and organizational level. And honestly, I thought it would be one or two talks and that'd be that. And I'd go and talk about something else, but clearly struck a nerve. And it's reached a stage now where I've done a couple of TED Talks and they get they get a lot of traction. Um, but, you know, I've now spoken around the world. I get taken around the world to speak. Um, and it takes up a huge chunk of my life. And there's a whole bunch of other folk who are doing this as well. And what we're doing is we're out there talking about how treat, choosing to deliberately treat people in a way that leaves them feeling valued and respected results in those people performing at a higher level and then our teams performing at a higher level. Um, and yeah, that's that's how I got there from watching people and thinking I'm never going to be able to do this through, hang on a second, what they're actually doing is getting other people around them to perform well. To So what's... What's the background of this? What's going on at a sort of neuroscience level? And yeah, and it turns out that lots of people want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Lovely. I'm definitely looking forward to this conversation. I I had a look, uh, I mentioned to you before we uh, went live at the website and, and watched one of your TED Talks. And, and I suppose the first question about Civility Saves Lives is how does it? And I think you describe on uh, in the TED Talk a scenario where there was a potential issue around, I think, a little girl who uh, was uh, sort yeah. of mistreated um, as part of, um, uh, yeah. you know, process. It'd be really interesting to share that because I think that's a really good example. Because, you know, exactly what you said at the beginning, people all the time talk about people in the medical profession being amazing people, uh, which, you know, they surely are. But we also know that human nature, when we're up against it, we're frustrated, we're tired, we're overworked. It's really hard to always be <laughs> sort of that nice person. So I, I can see exactly where the challenge is here. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Perhaps, perhaps sort of um, tell us that story to, to sort of highlight it uh, and then we'll talk about what you're doing to to change it. Yeah, I mean, basically what happens in the story is um, there's a really sick child and it's it's a true story. Uh, all the stories that I tell are true. You, nobody's ever recognisable from them. There's a really sick child and the doctor asks the nurse to do something. Um, and the doctor's under a lot of pressure. And then the doctor snaps at the nurse. Now, it's not always doctors to nurses. It goes in all sorts of different directions. But that's what happened on this occasion. The doctor snaps at the nurse. The nurse tries to do the thing. But her performance is clearly impeded by his behavior towards her and that's what all the evidence says and I'll, and I'll talk about why that happens in a second or two 
but her performance is clearly impeded. And, th- and then we get into a situation where we make a significant drug error. And it's it's painfully common. When I first started being a governance lead, we, w- we would look at these situations, somebody who made a mistake, we would kind of focus on the person who made a mistake. Even if that person had successfully done that task literally thousands of times before, we would point our finger at the person who made the mistake and we would say, do you know what? Yeah, you're bad. And we would give ourselves effectively the, the moral permission to punish them. And everybody then felt better because somebody had been given a bit of a punishment beating. But when you start to look at a bit more into the dynamics of what happens in these situations, what you find is that people who are good, competent, often very knowledgeable individuals, that these guys, and that's all of us, by the way, when put under enough pressure, our performance drops off. And this is the Yerkes dodson curve. It's been known for a very, very long time. That If you put people under too much pressure, performance drops off, particularly if you kind of blindside people and you treat them significantly negatively. And you can, you can see this in lots of different situations. I don't know if you've if you've ever if you've ever gone to do an exam and you've been really prepared, but you're really anxious about the exam, and you've gone in and not performed at the level that you know that you could, even though you were actually really well prepared for it. What's happened there is you've gone over the top of the Eric Dodson curve. You've become too aroused, and your performance has dropped off. And this happens to everybody. And the more complex the task you're doing, the easier it is for this to happen. And what I started discovering was that in the background, when things were going seriously wrong in patient care, there was there was often a really negative interaction that was going on between staff, very rarely deliberately. It was usually stressed people snapping. And one of the privileges of leadership is that we're we're allowed to snap. Um, we we feel as though we have no massive power as leaders, but actually, once you become senior, people will let you behave in all sorts of sometimes fairly unhelpful ways. And they will say things like, ah, oh, you know what? Joe's under a lot of pressure today. And they'll kind of forgive it. The problem is that when we do behave in negative ways to the people around us, it has an impact on their performance. You can measure it. You can measure the impact of mild to moderate incivility on people's cognitive ability. And Christine Porath and Amir Erez and a bunch of other researchers, Christine Pearson started looking at this maybe about 15 years ago. And basically what seems to happen is this, that when people treat us in an uncivil fashion, it is the thin end of the wedge of threat. You can imagine threat like a wedge. At the thick end of the wedge of threat, there's somebody standing in front of you with their fist cocked and ready to hit you. That's pretty overt threat. But the thin end of the wedge of threat is when people treat us in ways that we are not so sure about. We, we're not sure if they're trying to be offensive or not, but we think they might be. And that 
has a demonstrable, measurable impact on our ability to think. And the sort of thing I'm thinking about here is when you're in a meeting and you go to speak and somebody tuts or rolls their eyes or somebody finishes a sentence off for you or corrects your English halfway through a sentence, you're never quite sure if that's really meant to be offensive, but it feels pretty uncomfortable to be the recipient of that. And it turns out that when people do this to us, that the impact on our cognition is a 61% reduction in our cognitive ability in the moment. And that's interesting because that begins to explain a phenomenon that I think many of us are familiar with. When you go to work or you go somewhere and somebody says something unpleasant to you and you didn't, you didn't see it coming. And when we don't see these things coming, we tend to not be able to prepare for them. So we didn't see it coming. And then we walk away from it and think, what was that all about? And then you go and you do some work and you're sitting doing your work and then you find yourself thinking about it again and you have to make an active decision to push it out of your head. So you kind of push it out of your head. And then a few minutes later, it's back. It's back. It's It's got its talons into you and you're thinking about it again. It's got a name. It's called emotional hooking. And you get emotionally hooked into this and it's, you have to actively push it away so that you can get on with doing your work. And then you finish your day. You finish your day and you're in the car and you're driving home. And you stop at the lights and you're not thinking of anything when suddenly unbidden it comes into your head and and it goes boom. If I'd said what I've just thought of, if I said that right there, right then, then they would know that I'm actually a wit, that I'm not the sort of person to say things like that to, that I'm the sort of person that you shouldn't say stuff like they said to me to. And now I'm sitting in the car sitting in the car and I'm kicking myself for not having thought of it in the moment. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, in the moment, when somebody treats us negatively, we're not the wonderful, smart, witty people that we can be. In the moment, we're literally cognitively less. And that means that we can't think of that smart response. And that's a big old issue because it means that If we as leaders treat people around us in ways that leave them feeling disrespected, we are diminishing their cognitive abilities. We are literally making them a bit less smart. We do something else as well. We stop them wanting to share information. And one of the the key factors in in decision-making in medicine and outside medicine as well, because McKinsey do work on this, but then McKinsey do work on everything. Um, One of the key factors outside medicine, or sorry, in medicine and outside, is information sharing. Because if I'm leading a trauma and somebody in that team knows something, well, I don't necessarily know the thing that they know. If they don't share it with me, I cannot take it into account when I'm making a decision. And what seems to be the single most important factor in terms of how well um, how well trauma teams and cardiac arrest teams perform is how much information do they share so that the leader gets that information and that the leader can then use that information to come to the best decision that they can come up with. 
And it's totally fascinating that we've got generations of people who have a, who have sets of behaviours which um, sets of behaviours which actually inhibit the people around them from performing at their best. And I think it's, that's a really powerful thing. It was really uncomfortable for me when I heard about that, when I read about this, when I started to understand what was going on, when I treated people with that, you know, those little bits of sarcasm and, you know, when you tut and roll your eyes, that actually rather than being a kind of boss who was on it, I was actually, I was actually reducing the ability of my team to think and to share information. Mm. And it's, it's really quite transformative once people know this because in my experience, pretty much all of us have worked with bosses who've done the sort of things I've just talked about. But when they know they don't, they're not doing it because they're not doing it because they want to diminish the guys around them. They're doing it because that's what leadership looked like. That was, that was certainly what leadership looked like when I was a medical student and a junior doctor, um, yeah. Certainly at the beginning of my career. And it's no wonder that people replicate that. But as soon as people know that this stuff is negative, there's a whole bunch of folk who just stop doing it. They stop doing the tutting, the eye rolling and the correcting people halfway through a sentence because they don't want to diminish their team. They want their team to perform better. And they simply didn't know that that was having an impact on the ability of teams to perform at an individual and team level. Mm-hmm. So civility saves lives. What 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 are you tangibly doing? Because as you, I, I imagine you're sort of sharing this information. As you say, lots of people are, are behaving differently as a result. But then there will be lots of people who still won't hear it, and even if they have heard it, still won't change their behaviour. <laughs> yeah. How, how is how is that uh, going to happen? How how what, okay. what are you doing? <laughs> so so. That's the temptation, isn't it? The temptation is to go straight to the people who don't change their behaviour. And the problem with that is that we we tend to get a bit riled up and we decide those guys are deliberately behaving that way and something needs to be done. And the something is usually punishment. But there's an arc to this. The way I see it is there's an arc to it. And you start off by giving people information so that they understand that behavior has an impact on performance. Now start with that. And that, that's kind of the, the core civility saves lives message. And then beyond that, and, and we know that a whole bunch of people will change behavior just based on that alone. Anna Baverstock is a pediatrician in Somerset who did work on this uh, in maternity units. And basically they took the percentage of people in maternity units who believed that behavior had a material impact on performance from 60% to 100% over about a year. And the percentage of people who said that they saw uncivil behaviors in the preceding two to four weeks over that period of time went from 70% down to 50%. What that says to me is that there's a whole bunch of people who will choose to change. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, there's a bunch of folk who would talk about this as being a really important thing, but then perhaps leave a bit of a trail of devastation behind them. <laughs> so they buy into it as a concept and yet their own behavior can cause issues. And you know what? I mean, that's something that I can wear. Certainly. Um, I come from, I come from quite a sweary culture. I work 
in a sweary specialty. There's a there's a lot of variation in, in what specialties are like in medicine. And emergency medicine is quite sweary. Mm-hmm. So I swear, I swear really well, if I'm honest. I mean, it's almost like a special <laughs> skill. I have two entries in the Profanosaurus, so I'm actually quite, I'm quite creative in my in my swearing. But of course, that's problematic to many people. So, you know, I, I can I am guilty of this thing that I'm talking about, about how sometimes we'll we will do things and we won't always know that it's been it's causing other people offense. It can be so normalized in our culture. And one of the issues there is that basically that happens to us. We we cause offense, but we don't know that we've caused offense. We also, we're also misinterpreted, and we are misinterpreted all over the place. So where I go to after this initial bit of you know behavior matters is actually, and people are going to mis- misunderstand you, um, and there's lovely work by Kruger and Epley from 2005 on this um, that shows that when we're speaking to each other, um, the other person understands about, 78% when it's spoken. But if we send an email to somebody, that's way down to about 56%. That is if the if the email and the conversation have emotion, um, data, and perhaps some sarcasm in there. That when we send an email to somebody, we just get it terribly, terribly wrong. And one of the reasons for that is that we have less information to deal with. We like emails because, hey, we look at an email and we go, there it is, it's in black and white. Everybody can understand what it is that I'm getting at. Only it doesn't work like that. Because when we're talking to other people, we have all sorts of stuff. We've got words, tone, movement. When you can hear somebody and see them, you've got the mood of the person who's speaking. And then you've got the mood of the person who's listening. And then there's something else. And that's the reputation of the person who's talking. And basically, with all that stuff, we get about 78% of information. But if we send somebody an email, we have words. We don't have tone and movement. And you also don't know the mood of the sender. I could have been smiling or snarling when I sent you that email. So emails are interpreted through three things. There are some words on the page. There's the mood of the recipient. And then there's the reputation of the person who sends it. And it's simply not enough to interpret an email with any degree of certainty. So we talk to people about that. We talk to people about, hey, behavior matters. And by the way, you're going to be misunderstood all over the place. And the final part of the work that I tend to do with people is, so if you've been misunderstood, would you want to know if if how you behave matters or how people feel that you behave towards them matters and you're going to be misunderstood? Would you want somebody to tell you if you've been misunderstood on the assumption that you weren't trying to be offensive? And people, people generally say yes. It's actually mm-hmm. really rare for people to say no. I've had a couple of people say no. <laughs> and then we talk about what's the best way of letting somebody know that their behavior um, has led to other people being upset, distressed, 
And if you like, I can talk about what the evidence says about that in medicine. Yeah, that, that yeah. would be okay. interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So so basically, um, the way that we tend to do is we people want personal mastery. So if Joe and Chris have a conversation and and I feel really offended by whatever the conversation was, I, I really want to be in a position to come back and tell you. Um, but the hierarchy might be stopping that. And I might yeah. feel uncomfortable coming and talking to you about that. So I go and I get some training. I get training in having a crucial conversation, difficult conversation. I might get training in speaking truth to power. And everyone now assumes that Chris is going to go and speak to Joe about whatever happened. But what what we find is that people don't go and have that conversation. They don't go and have that conversation. So I don't come and have the conversation with you because actually I tend to think that you deliberately hurt me in the conversation. I tend to think that somebody has, um, I tend to think that somebody has, tried to cause me offence. We we can't help it. That's part of the human condition. We interpret intent in what other people do. And what then happens is everybody thinks I've spoken to Joe. I've told Joe. And then when you behave the same way to somebody else, what happens then is that people go, good grief, she knows that that's a bad thing to do and she's done it again. And your reputation gets a, a wee bit worse and a wee bit worse. And all the time, nobody's actually had the conversation. So mm. people don't know how they're landing with others. But in the background, we're collectively sense-making and deciding that this person must be a bad person because somebody must have told them. And time and again, the evidence on this is that nobody has told them. No one's had that conversation. and uh, Nobody's had that essential conversation. And in my own head, I've moved away from calling them difficult conversations or crucial conversations. I just call them essential conversations. People need to have these conversations. And the deal here is who's the right person to have the conversation? And it's not me. It's not the person who is offended because they tend to carry a lot of emotion into the conversation they have with the person they feel has been offensive So they get into that conversation and they're either super timid and meek and mitigating or they're really aggressive. And that just makes it really difficult to to deal with in the moment because mostly people who have caused offence don't know that they've caused offence. And it turns out the best person to do this, and this is work by Jerry Hickson in Vanderbilt, which is in Nashville. It turns out the best person to go and have that conversation isn't the supposed victim. It's a peer of the person who was supposedly offensive. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they're the best person to have the conversation is because when they have it, it's far less emotional. And they can hold that conversation in a way that the other person might be able to hear. And and the place that we've got to in this is that when somebody comes to have the conversation with with we'll make it you in this in this situation, Joe, that they're going to have the conversation with three overarching principles. The first one is that they are going to care about you in this conversation. That's really counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. 
but they're going to care about you because we know that people who are hurting others are often in pain themselves. They're often overwhelmed. There's often all sorts of other bad stuff going on in their lives. And going in there to try and punish them is an extremely bad starting place. So we're going to have the conversation with compassion. The second thing, and this is again counterintuitive, is that there's going to be no judgment in the conversation. The person who's going to speak with you isn't going to tell you you're bad. They're not going to tell you that you're unprofessional. Um, telling somebody that they're unprofessional is you've instantly lost any chance of having a decent conversation with them because we all push back on being told that we're unprofessional. So they're going to have a conversation with compassion. They're not going to judge you, but they are going to give you a professional gift. And the professional gift is this. It is the knowledge of how you are seen by somebody else. And the way that we teach people to do it is, is a three-part approach. There's check-in, raise the flag, and then land the information. And if I was if if I was teaching somebody to have this conversation with you, what they'd be doing is they'd be coming and say, Hey Joe, how are you? No, really, how are you? So a proper check-in, not the superficial check-in. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what? Sometimes, sometimes people go, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, I, I went to see a guy, it's been about a couple of years ago. I went to see this guy who, who'd been involved in something where a member of staff had been really upset. And I, and I went and said, hey, how you doing? He said, fine. I said, no, really, how are you? Eight and a half minutes later, he was still talking. He was not okay. He was very much not okay. And sometimes that's the point at which we stop and advise people that they should go and see occupational health, their line manager, their GP or whatever. Mostly mm-hmm. people say they're okay. And the second bit is raise a flag. And it would be it goes like this. So, Joe, what happened when you were talking to Chris yesterday? Now, it's pretty clear that something happened. And sometimes people will surf, surface something there themselves. Uh, often they won't. Often it's a fairly normal interaction for them. But if they do surface it themselves, what then frequently happens is they move into what's called service restoration mode. And service restoration mode is where you go, oh, okay. So I made this joke. I didn't think Chris heard it. I realized afterwards that it could have sounded misogynist and Chris might have been offended. And I say, yes, he was. And what you say is, okay, do you mind if I leave? I need to go and speak to him because you want to fix this. That's service restoration mode. And we know a lot of people move into that, but also a lot of, there are a lot of people who don't move into that mode. Um, and actually, who don't recognize that anything's happened. So nothing happened. It was normal. And the final bit is this, the delivery of a professional gift. This is the knowledge of how we are seen by other people. And the way that we currently teach people to do this, and this has evolved over the years, is it's really quite simple, but it's, it's also very structured. And it goes like this. It goes, so Joe, after you and Chris spoke yesterday, Chris was really upset. And I know that you'd want to know. And that's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. There's no parenting. There's no judgment. There's no what are you going to do next. There's nothing. It says you now have a packet of information. 
Now you're going to talk. You're going to tell me what happened. I kind of don't really. I don't really mind what you say at that point. I was about to say I don't care, but that's not true. I don't mind what you say at that point because actually what's going to happen then is that you, you're showing that you have this piece of information and what you do with that is your choice. Mm-hmm. Now, that all sounds terribly soft, doesn't it? And it's a wee bit softer than the way that Jerry Hickson does it, but then the Americans have a slightly different culture to us, particularly around being able to fire people. And... I went to Nashville in the days before Zoom, um, just before the pandemic. I went to Nashville to go and see Jerry Hicks and to go and talk to him about this. And he he told me they'd done 37,000 of those interventions at that time. After a single intervention like that, only 2,000 people repeated the same behaviour. Those 2,000 got a second um, a second one of those cup of coffee conversations I've just described to you, only this mm-hmm. time with a 360 from people about what it was like to work with them. So they couldn't say it was vindictive and just one person out to get them. Yeah. And then they were down to 267. 267 was the first level at which um, HR and line management got involved. And that blows my mind. 37,000 people behaving in ways which undermined a culture of safety or learning or excellence mm-hmm. down to 267 by the act of letting people know the impact of their behavior. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we and yet we don't do it. You know, we, we so easily slip into being punitive. We so easily slip into this desire to to other people to say they're a problem and to punish them. And often we don't give people a chance to be the best versions of themselves because they don't have a clue how they're landing with the folk around them. Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. As you say, to see see that um, massive change, that's such a big improvement. It just, um, as you said, you know, when you said it sound, sounded quite soft, it's like it's massively powerful and, and actually um, life changing for people, isn't it? It's not it's, yeah. it's not uh, not to be sniffed at, as they say. <laughs> yeah. And but delivering negative information to people, it's actually it's a really difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the big risk is that we take judgment into it. And effectively, we tell people that they're bad. And the one of the things to try and teach people is to take curiosity, not judgment, into the conversation. Because mm-hmm. it's actually quite rare that people are deliberately offensive. I mean, the data on this is about it's about four percent of people say they deliberately abuse their power. There may be uh, some more percentages who won't admit to doing that, but. Mm-hmm. Most people aren't trying to be offensive, yet once we get into leadership positions, people are looking at us. People are looking at us, they're looking for the norms, they're looking for what's it okay to behave like around here? Mm-hmm. And what, in fact, what does good leadership look like around here? And, and that's a big deal because we don't recognize it, particularly if if you're dealing with people who are tired, who maybe who are, maybe people who are a wee bit burnt out. Burnt out people 
often don't think that anybody gives a damn what they say and what they do. They feel marginalised and unimportant, and they they will frequently act out in my mm-hmm. in my world, and yet everybody's watching them. They're all watching them. They're watching them as a leader and they're going, this is how you behave around here. This is how you're allowed to behave around here. And they often don't know the impact that they're having on folk that they're interacting with. And one of the one of the things that I do when I when I deal with some of these guys is is really again it's counterintuitive. When when people ask you to have a word with somebody whose behavior is really shocking or seem to be there seem to be undermining people around them when they say can you talk to them what they generally mean is can you go and give them a bit of a shooing can you give them a punishment beating and that's the polar opposite of what i do when i go and deal with these guys when i go and deal with them what i try to do is try and show them how important they are and how everything that they say and do is being watched and it's often being emulated and they don't think they matter they don't think that anyone cares about what they say and do and walking them through that process of realizing that their behavior is being is role modeled throughout organizations and medicine is extremely hierarchical can be quite transformative for folk and they you know they don't get it immediately it takes them a little while to get it but just that recognition that they at an individual level really matter mm-hmm. seems to be powerful for them. Yeah. Chris, it's been really interesting talking to you. Um, we uh, we have totally run out of time. Um, <laughs> let people know how they can find out more about uh, what you're doing. Yeah, sure. So um, you can you can get me through the Civility Saves Lives website. Um, John administers that and he sends everybody through to me eventually. And I arrange and I chat to folk about this stuff. Um, You can see me, uh, the easiest TED Talk to find, it's it's weird, there's some TED Talks that are not easy to find, but the easiest TED Talk to find is TEDx Exeter. Chris Turner, or if you just put Chris Turner and civility into Google, um, I appear there in my waistcoat. Um, and yeah, that's that's probably the easiest way to to find um, to find that that stuff. The the other thing is I do a podcast with um, with my friend Adrian. Adrian Plunkett started a movement called Learning from Excellence, which is amazing, amazing. Um, positive approach to helping people to be better in medicine and Adrian and I run a podcast called better together and we interview people um around the world who have stories of, usually within healthcare about ideas like hope and um what we do with what we do with compliments and what we do with gratitude letters and yeah, you can you can hear me and Adrian talking to people about that stuff there as well. Brilliant. Lovely. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Joe. It's been a delight.
And just to let you know, next week is obviously Christmas and the week after is New Year. So there won't be shows on those days. We're back on the 8th of January with Maria Marukian and uh, host Andy Gorham. And they'll be talking about better communication to foster competent workplaces. Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.